We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to what is a very special episode of The Scoop. We are here in our offices in New York. We've put a pause to the building of our new conference rooms, which will be the new home of The Scoop. But for now, we have Agatha Basilar on the show. She is running for Congress, trying to usurp the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, in California's 12th District. And we have her on the show. She is here because she has an interest in the crypto and blockchain world. In fact, she has a has attempted or is is in the process of attempting to raise a very large sum of money, a million dollars, as our Yogita Katri reported earlier this month. She's raised about six thousand vis-a-vis Coinbase. So long way to go, Agatha. Thank you for joining us on the scoop. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's it's my pleasure. So let's sort of just start with the basics of your campaign, right? When we think about what's at the heart of it, I see the slogan, the status quo must go. A nice rhyme, a limerick, if you will. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean? Um, help the audience conceptualize what that means and, and where crypto uh, falls into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm running to represent San Francisco and this is the district that I consider home, but it's also the district that has Nancy Pelosi as a representative, who is the leader of the Democratic Party and the establishment that I feel like needs to be challenged. There are, the pace of our politics is too slow, too incremental in my view, and we need more dramatic changes, whether that's more dramatic climate action, getting money out of politics so that our government, our political system can actually represent people rather than corporate interests, rather than profits. And I I think it's just time. We're in a a time in our history where our capacity for technology to impact the world is unprecedented. And the decisions we make 
in that area, whether it's AI, automation, social media monopolies, the crypto space. The representative of San Francisco, I believe, should be someone that has a social justice background and a tech background that can help us navigate to the future where we want to go. Do you think that the the folks in Washington, the folks representing us and your competitor uh, don't have the wherewithal to necessarily grapple with some of these issues, you know, automation sort of taking over at a fast pace or big Silicon Valley tech firms having maybe too much power without having that background of being uh, in the tech world and having that, as you said, social justice value, maybe they don't have the the tools to address some of these issues is, is your point, it seems. Right. I think a diversity of perspectives is so important. Right now, the average member of Congress is a 58-year-old male, white, millionaire lawyer. And only 3% of the House of Representatives has any sort of STEM background. I think we need more people who have studied science and engineering. Um, That's what I studied at Stanford. And yeah, in in our district's case, Nancy Pelosi was elected in 1989. So that is before I was even born. It's been 30 years and San Francisco and the world have greatly changed. And even though I respect her and think she should go down with a strong legacy, and I acknowledge I couldn't be running as a young woman if not for an early feminist like her, but it's it's also just time for change. The world is changing. And I realize I didn't answer part of your last question about how crypto fits into this. I view this space as um, bringing power back to the people and removing it away from the large institutions that tend to lead to or can lead to corruption. Um, and so decentralizing power um, is a the theme of this campaign. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How does, what, is that, what does that translate into for you, decentralizing power? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. So one of the first ways that I got into this space to begin with is that I got to meet uh, Santiago Siri and Pia Mancini from what was at the time Democracy OS. And they had built a political party that was nicknamed the Trojan Horse Party or the the Internet Party. And they um, went through the traditional Argentinian electoral system where they ran candidates that committed to make decisions on the legislative floor based on how people would vote on a real-time digital platform. That way they were able to hack the system from within and say, hey, you know, people elected to office tend to make decisions based on who their donor base is. There's a huge correlation between how much money you raise in an election and what what your chances of winning are. And companies hold enormous power. If they have a budget to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars on an election, they can come to you and say, hey, we can give candidate A this money if you support our interests, or we're going to spend that money against you. And that can be a make or break thing. And and it, not to, and so politicians tend to be easily swayed by this. Um, so I'm really inspired by Democracy OS 
and the evolution that it then took to become Democracy Earth, um, which is now a U.S.-based nonprofit that is building blockchain-based voting software. So how could you tokenize the vote and not just use uh, cryptocurrencies to track how monetary value tra- is transferred before, between people, but how could that represent a, a vote um, that you can delegate either directly to a representative or to someone in your community that you know and trust. So I'm really excited about how the blockchain space can bring power back to the people and use it in in your own community rather than uh, just being able to vote for delegates that a party system grooms. Sure, sure. And when we think about some of these issues, the amount of money that is in politics and the fact that you have these these huge corporate interests um, influencing the political system, there's also the other side of the coin, no pun intended, which is, you know, money can be viewed. And I think a lot of folks in the cryptocurrency ecosystem view money as an extension, if you will, of their own ability to express themselves and to express their their First Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. How do you strike a balance between allowing folks to influence the system with the money that they have versus, um, you know, minimizing or minimizing certain voices from the system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what Citizens United did, the Supreme Court case that said that, yes, money, being able to spend your money in electoral races was a, a freedom of speech. Now, that is has gone way too far. There needs to be limits on campaign finance because I'll, I'll give you a, uh, an anecdote. So before the 2018 election, I spent a month and a half traveling around the country on the ground helping uh, people register to vote. So I talked to hundreds of people about why they had never registered, why they were registering now, what they wanted out of their democracy. And I heard time and time again that people felt like they were just smart enough to know that their, vo- their voice and their vote doesn't matter in a se- when corporate interests are washing away, drowning out their vote. And I, I think a democracy is strongest when more people participate T- today Around 30% of people vote in our elections. And you can point to that as, well, we make it difficult for people to do so. You know, in some states, you have to go in person to a DMV to register to vote. You, you can't do it online. Then it comes election day. We don't have the day off. You have to wait in long lines. If, if you're in a job that doesn't let you take the time off, then it could prevent you from voting. But I think there's a, a psychological part of it, too, where people feel disenfranchised or like, what, what's the what's the point? Um, and we just see that this kind of system doesn't garner results that are for the good of society. For example, if um, an oil and gas company um, can, ma- can manipulate information, can um, sway politicians to, you know, support their corporate goals, it's devastating our environment. And right now we're in an untenable situation where we need to push for more renewable energies. And if companies are going to stop us from doing that, that that can't be right. 
Sure, sure, sure. There's sort of interests that are being propped up because of, or some might argue are being propped up because of the overwhelming amount of money behind it that are at the, you know, kind of against the public interest, so to speak, mm -hmm. I guess you could argue. And, and the question is, how do we correct maybe that imbalance? Um, I guess moving on to some other issues that your campaign is addressing, there is, you know, obviously you um, are supportive based off, based on your own background as an immigrant of immigrant justice, and you're looking at things like the Green New Deal and, and single-payer health care, uh, sort of the, the, I would say, the backbone of this new um, liberal resurgence of the Democratic Party. It was a great article. I, f I forget which magazine it was in, but it was about how you have folks like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer who represent the, the uh, you know, they were here, as you said earlier, since the 80s and maybe even before that, the 70s, right? And they sort of saw that Republican wave sweep the country with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And then you know, the George Bush years. And so many of them, uh, through their policies and through their words, have been reticent to kind of uh, engage with some of these um, more progressive ideas, which, which, you know, many folks in the country agree with. But, but at the concern of losing elections, they've kind of waded into the waters a little more um, slowly than the likes of AOC and some of these newer Democratic congressmen and women. Um, is that something that you think about um, in terms of championing for, for some of these more liberal ideas? How do you do so in a way that doesn't jeopardize um, the position of power that the Democrats are in currently? Mm -hmm. Right. So right now we have control of the House. We have a majority. And... Nancy Pelosi as a speaker needs to not just represent San Francisco, which tends to be more progressive than the rest of the country, but she has to be mindful of the states in the middle of the country that might have recently changed from red to blue. And so we see her take more middle ground centrist positions uh, to not lose those states so that we can maintain the majority. So I, I understand that. Um, but I also think that there's a, a a disconnect where now you see in the presidential race, every, every candidate standing today, except minus one or two, are advocating for Medicare for all. And this is something where in San Francisco, we have been pushing for this for decades. I mean, more than 70% of San Franciscans want Medicare for all, but that's one issue that Nancy Pelosi, even though she was instrumental in passing Obamacare, the ACA, uh, she's not taking that next step towards a single-payer healthcare system. And we see the effects of that right here in San Francisco. I mean, we have an enormous population experiencing homelessness right now. And a major reason for that is because we don't have adequate health care. And many people, a huge percentage of them, weren't able to pay a few hundred dollars of a medical bill. We're not taking care of our people enough. If you look at the donor base of Nancy Pelosi, her second largest donor is our private insurance companies. And so 
you might draw a connection to why she's not pushing for those things. Um, and I think we need, yeah, we need to get away from the system where we believe that fundraising is leadership and instead take positions that really help people. The situation is so dire. And I, and I worry that the current reality in Congress doesn't match the lived experience of everyday Americans. So that's the perspective that I'm trying to bring. In what other ways? You mentioned um, Medicare for all, um, a single-payer health care system. In what other ways do you think Nancy Pelosi right now isn't representing California's 12th district? Mm-hmm. Well, one is, what's funny is that California has always been a leader in climate action, um, but for some reason, we're, she's not moving fast enough on that topic. And what's interesting is that I've been so, collaborating with some of the, the youth movements like the Sunrise Movement. Um, but anytime I'm talking or giving a speech in front of an environmental group, just at the mention that I'm challenging Pelosi, I get an immediate applause <laughs> or standing ovation because folks in that field are paying attention and saying, we're moving way too slowly on this. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's one, one major issue. And then I would also say technology. We are the epicenter of technological innovation. And yet, at least to my knowledge, the last interview I heard with Pelosi, she took the stance that, you know, these tech companies know more uh, than Congress does, and that they should self-regulate. Whereas I, I just can't imagine um, them doing that. Or if it's not in their interests, wh- why? Um, and I also feel like, particularly in the crypto blockchain space, we don't have regulation that is empowering entrepreneurship. It's leading to a brain drain where it's really hard to start a crypto company here. Um, even though the groups here in the Bay Area that advise crypto companies, they say they warn you not to start a U.S.-based company or, or what the challenges will be. And that's why you see so many more um, innovation happening in Europe in this space. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that on, on our end too. Um, just a lot of ambiguity and, and a lack of clarity in terms of on the regulatory front. Focusing in on some of the tech companies, um, you know, we've had folks like Senator Elizabeth Warren and and others suggest that we break some of these large firms up. Perhaps they have too much power. When we look at Facebook, right, they've been making headlines uh, for their Libra current uh, cryptocurrency. And a lot of the lawmakers, you know, I was down there at the Senate and congressional hearing just vehemently against this thing. Um, and it's another question of how do you strike a balance between innovation and, and not, you know, letting the, 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 sh- the lion into the, into the sheep's sleeping quarters um, and protect consumers. Where do you fall on Libra and do you view it as a positive for the tech crypto ecosystem or is something that we might want to keep a more diligent, skeptical eye over? Mm -hmm. Right. So I might have my 
skepticisms with Facebook more broadly. Um, but if we're talking about the impact of Libra in the crypto space, I think it's good for adoption. And it makes sense to me with the fact that Facebook has 2 billion people as a user base. It is probably the fastest way that we can get people to start using crypto, um, actually get it in the user's hands um, and have real experience what it's like to use it. Because right now it's we're so early. I mean, so few people have actually played with it. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's something to pay attention to and, and, and watch carefully. So I'm going to be following that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think and, about Facebook as a company? Well, it's brought us to this point where we're now conducting our democracy on social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And it's been incredible in terms of you know, connecting the world, keeping in touch with people. Um, but it did break democracy. Um, we were not careful enough with how our news was aggregated and shared there. Um, their power to amplify certain voices um, that might contribute to disinformation is super dangerous. And I think that is a really interesting conversation um, because they are providing functionally necessary service for a country. But so that makes them too complex to simply break up, but too important not to be required to adapt to the needs of the public. Um, so that and is, too, I, and too important to allow them to potentially self-regulate themselves. But I, I think, I mean, when you think about to, to use your words, how they broke democracy or broke the means by which information is disseminated, one might also think, well, what, how, what's to stop them from breaking money or from breaking the financial system? But mm-hmm. looking at, at that, um, you know, you kind of would have came up age around the time of the financial crisis and, and at, the, at the same time as uh, so did Bitcoin emerge from Satoshi Nakamoto out of this um, anxiety about the financial system and whether or not it was serving our best interests and whether or not inequality was getting out of hand. or And, and the, a lot of those conversations continue. Um, where do you fall in terms of income inequality and, and, and whether or not the financial system is exacerbating or, or remedying some of those issues? I mean, if we think about um, what capitalism has done for the globe. It's brought billions out of poverty, but at the same time, right, the the gap between uh, the richest, at least in this country, right, and the poorest have has widened. So, mm-hmm. there are yeah, income, cons. It, right. I think we've gotten to a point where yes, capitalism has been so helpful. Markets, competitions help you tend to help high quality um, companies win out and provide good services. But I think we've come to a point where in an unfettered way, capitalism has outlived its usefulness and we need to come 
we need we need to adapt and come to a, a new system. And I, I'm not sure I'm not advocating for one thing or the other. Um, but yeah, the income inequality it it it's gone too far. Um, and when you have so much power um, aggregated with just so, so few people, um, we can't have that anymore because the world is so complex. It's impossible to know. Um, for one person to to make these decisions, and I, I would even tie it back to democracy and why we need to. Um, okay, so sorry to start from the beginning. Yeah, no. If worries. I were to tie that to uh, how I view the history of the United States and where we can go, so at independence we transitioned from the rule of a single person, King George the Third, to the rule of a one percent system, which is Congress and money for this elite class of the 1%. And now, 230 years later, we have the technological capacity to empower closer to 100% of Americans. And we can do that with financial tools, but also this is where I think the crypto space and blockchains can come in, where we can actually have people um, bring their insights into the political realm in real time. And for a long time, you know, we couldn't have digital voting because our data was stored in third party servers owned by a corporation or a government that we couldn't necessarily trust. But now we have these trustless decentralized ledgers that we could hold elections all the time. And we're seeing on social media, we vote every single day with our likes, with our upvotes. But that doesn't have institutional value. So how can we take this practice that we're already doing it, but bring it into politics to empower people? And so what what are you you're suggesting that we hold elections more frequently? Um... Yeah, I would propose having a more um, affordable and accurate polling system that allows us to have a more transparent system that holds our representatives accountable to what people want. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I was your representative, I would love to make decisions informed by how people vote in real time. If If there was a vote coming up on the floor in Congress, that could be available for people to comment on or to vote on. And you can either vote directly on it if you were knowledgeable and passionate if you didn't have the time or the interest, the default would be that your vote could go to me as your representative to to do that decision making, or you could delegate your vote to someone in in your district that you knew or trusted. Let's say it was an, a matter of immigration to vote on, and you have um, an immigration lawyer or friend that you really trust. You could say, okay, now I delegate my vote to them, and they have more more votes to cast. Um, and I see that that kind of system being the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, focusing, shifting gears a bit and thinking about San Francisco for a second. I was out to lunch the other day with a woman uh, describing the the homeless situation. Um, it's it's so ironic to me in a city where you have some of the richest companies and richest people in the world and the most 
progressive track record of elections that compared to anywhere else in the country, you have almost the worst sort of situation for their most downtrodden. Um, and while many of the folks that live there promote XYZ, it seems that they can't do it in their own backyard. Um, how do you, as a political activist there, sort of um, grapple with that? I, one of the mantras that I subscribe to is the notion of getting proximate, that you have to be close to the people um, who are suffering or struggling with something in order to make the best kind of solution. So this is something I see on the ground here where uh, let's say there was an event here recently um, where they were trying to build a temporary homeless shelter and they had a two hour hearing on it where the community could come and voice their concerns or questions. And in that whole two hour um, event, not once did we hear from a person experiencing homelessness or hear the stories about what they're going through or get their perspectives. And so a, a lot of people in the city actually didn't want this homeless shelter to be built. And I, there's so many reasons that we could get into there, but I think people forget who a homeless person is. Um, I, I think some people come to it in a, in a basis of fear where they, they see it as a deranged man who could attack or hurt them at any point. But so much of homelessness is invisible and, you might see a, a mother, uh, a woman, and not realize that she's living out of her car with her her kids, and we're like, what are the reasons that got people there in the first place? So, I, I think we need more humanity and more um, conversations on the root causes of what got them in that situation in the first place. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. is where you can touch on healthcare or our criminal justice system or. Uh, an economy where it no longer pays to work anymore. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, where you can work two or three jobs, and if you're making minimum wage, it's not a living wage that um, it can can afford for you to live. Where if you're actually a laborer working on an hour-by-hour -hour basis, that is no longer enough to create a livable uh, lifestyle. But let's say if you already have a lot of money or, um, you know, money begets money, you don't, you're not even, let's say working as hard, but that is, that is paying the bill. And we have a system that favors that kind of work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. versus the other. That's always going to be the case. You think that, I mean, certain types of jobs will always be more valuable than others. And as a result, certain types of jobs will make more money than others. Um, how do you, I mean, that's kind of just a natural state or the status quo. Um, you're looking to change that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what does that, what does that mean? How do you, remedy 
sort of laws of natural laws of society or what some might view as natural unwritten laws of society people who can do something that is more valuable um to the rest of the populace will will you know if you build something like amazon or facebook you're going to end up a billionaire as a result of people wanting the things that you can give them yeah such such a tough question but um yeah i would say we could look to things like a universal basic income where at a baseline we're taking care of our people that just for being alive you have the dignity of not having to be in survival mode mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how would you feel about i think universal basic income is pretty interesting and I would be curious or I'd be interested to see how it would work where you do that, you, you provide people a certain amount of money so that they don't have that anxiety you're talking about, but also kind of take away a lot of the bureaucracy and the the government, many of these government programs that are paying bureaucrats hundreds of thousands of dollars salaries and just democratize it, you know, you, everyone gets a certain amount of money. There's no, you don't go to this agency or this agency for this or that. And you as the individual can spend it how you see fit for your family or for yourself, as opposed to, I mean, there are a, there are so many duplicate, you know, duplicate, duplicate organizations that do basically the same thing. Um, it, it might make more sense to just, cut all that out and just give people the money directly. Yeah. And there's where the pilots have been done. There's research that shows that people tend to spend the money in, in what makes sense for their lifestyles that you don't need this top heavy bureaucracy telling you what you need or how you should spend your money. Um, And I think it gets us away from this notion where poor people don't deserve to, um, enjoy themselves or like, you know, uh, learning a new skill or having a hobby or going on vacation um, can be so beneficial, um, could trans- could be transformative for some people. Um, and if you want to spend your money like that, please do, please contribute to our humanity. Um, but then, but most people tend to spend their money on investing in education, either for themselves or for their, their kids. Um, and uh, yeah, it would be so great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I guess the argument is, you know, it's, 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 it would have been my money to enjoy myself with, um, the money that I worked hard for. Um, I want to go on an even longer vacation <laughs> at the, you know, it's kind of taking away from my own pie viewed as a zero sum game. Um, it, it also allows people a baseline where they feel more confident advocating for themselves. Um, I, you know, especially if you look in lower wage jobs, if, and if they're not unionized, they can get exploited or not have the negotiating power um, to advocate for themselves. And if you feel like, okay, my life isn't dependent on this job, I can actually speak up more or pursue the thing 
that I'm more interested in pursuing. You mean something like political activism, getting involved <laughs> in the community? Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was I was going to bring up another topic, but then we get down into immigration. But, but. What was that? Well, um, if you, there's a problem, especially um, in the undocumented community, where because someone's immigration status is so precarious, um, they tend to be robbed of their wages, where someone, they might do months of work and then never get paid, and then don't feel like they have the ability to stand up um, or call that employer out because that employer might threaten them with a deportation, or they might not have the money to pay for the legal fees to represent themselves. Sure, sure. Um, and But technically, right, I mean, the employer um, is is in a precarious legal position employing them. Um, and oftentimes it's kind of the, the immigrants themselves who are you know, face the burden of that as opposed to sometimes the companies themselves. But you know what I mean? Like the companies yeah. will employ however many undocumented immigrants and and oftentimes it's, to your point, it's those immigrants who kind of have to worry about the ramifications of, of doing that and the companies typically never really run into any issues mm -hmm. but and, and at the same time there's an argument to be made that is you know if you you know where where do our where does a person's rights um how far do they extend outside of the place where they were born right um if you are not legally um um clear to sort of work in this country there's an argument to be made that is, well, then you don't enjoy the, the rights that come along with, with that or some of the rights that come along with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, then I think we need to upgrade our immigration system because then that's just an excuse to subjugate people or not include them in the economy um, or in our communities when, yeah, yeah. first of all, we yeah, <laughs> that's, what what are some of the things, pivoting back to crypto, that mm -hmm. are happening in the space that are interesting and exciting to you? Well, um, I'm definitely excited what Democracy Earth is working on. Um, they just got a grant um, to work on identity. And why I'm excited about that is that's one of the bottlenecks for how we can get to digital democracy because right now you can't really verify um, that one person gets one identity and that, that you don't get trolls or sybils mm -hmm. on the network. Um, and so I think that's really interesting how you can um, like outsmart machine learning and, mm -hmm. and, and other ways of, of doing these fake identities. Like, did you see the, all the, those registry of, of photos of people that never existed? It's so creepy. So creepy. <laughs> it's so, and and a lot of these 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 issues, most of our politicians aren't even thinking about, right? Because, mm -hmm. but in, in any case, um, yeah, and yeah, and 
there is uh, a lot of fear, ignorance in the space. Like even in California, um, there's a, a state bill that would that's trying to regulate digital currency, and they just want to make if if you want to buy any sort of cryptocurrency, they want to make sure that you're licensed and that if you're not, then you could get fined fifty thousand dollars. It's just crazy. They just want to ban it altogether. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting because, you know, oftentimes when we think about over-regulation or, you know, too much financial regulation, it is, it is folks on the left who are championing some of those things. Um, do you feel like you're more sympathetic to deregulation given your interest in the crypto world and, and kind of some of the more libertarian leanings therein? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say if we do regulate, it could just be helpful to have more clarity on what is legal or not legal and what can empower entrepreneurs. Because right now, if you're a startup, you spend so much of your money just on legal fees, trying to get every legal perspective, hiring a bunch of law firms. And even then, you're still left in a place where I, I'm in this limbo purgatory where I don't know what I can or cannot do. And so it's just simpler and easier to go start a company overseas. So what's your, let's, let's think about your campaign for a second. What's the strategy we have till March, 2020 is the primary. What does, what is the game plan until then? How do you gain mindshare and how do you um, effectively communicate that you should be representing the 670,000 some odd folks in your district? Mm-hmm. California has an open primary system, so that means two Democrats can advance to the general election in November. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have one Democrat or one Republican mm-hmm. representative. So the goal in March is to get second place, and for that, we estimate that we need 26,000 votes to get that second place spot. I have a multimedia background and we're going to do a bunch online. Um, then there's a, we win with a, a ground game with organizing, going to door to door, having community events, um, and just getting the word out there. Um, and if I were to get that second place position, that would be the first time ever that a Democrat has challenged Nancy Pelosi in the general. So in the 30 year tenure, she's never had a debate. Uh, that would be historic. Um, and then that's when a lot of momentum would pick up even more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So ground, uh, sort of a ground game, grassroots effort. Um, and what does that, what does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. So we're doing events all the time, ha- having house parties. If you are aligned with, if you sign up on our website, um, or you want to be a volunteer hosting an event with your network, getting just 10 to 20 people in the room um, to talk about politics. We're also, we haven't done one yet, but we want to pilot um, these live democracy events. That's to come. Live um, democracy events. <laughs> what does yeah. that mean? Well, still figuring it out, but <laughs> how do you try to 
get a whole bunch of people in a room that might have differing opinions to come to a consensus, whether, um, yeah. Um, and I think it's just an interesting question that we, we need a prototype and there's some really interesting people in the district who are, who are working on this. So trying to workshop that with them and yeah. Well, I, uh, I think house parties and live democracy events are a good place to wrap up our conversation, Agatha. It's, 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 it's not an easy task to run for Congress, I'm sure. Um, and I hope, I hope that you make time for rest and relaxation as you hit the trail. Anyway, thank you so much. It's great chatting. Thank you. Yeah. No, no worries. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcast. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code it's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.